Welcome to the Capital Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the host of the Capital Beach, and I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization. I'm excited to be coming to you today with four very interesting and thoughtful uh, individuals who are each going to bring a different perspective on regional ocean partnerships. Um, We're going to be talking at sort of probably a bit of a high level today about what regional ocean partnerships are. We've got four regional ocean partnerships across the United States, and we've got the uh, head of each of those organizations to come in and tell us a bit about what they do, what regional ocean partnerships are, and how each of the four regional ocean partnerships are, are similar and how they're distinct, um, besides just uh, where they where they operate in their geography. Um, we could probably have a very extensive conversation uh, with each one of these that could take up an entire podcast, but this one is going to be sort of a that high-level overview. Uh, I'm excited to share that I think there will be some follow-ups podcasts to this podcast where we will have a little bit more time to dive into specifics. I know there's going to be a, a follow-up, I believe, with, with one of the Mid-Atlantic uh, Regional Coast uh, Council on the Ocean to talk about their regional data portal. So we'll get into all this stuff today, um, but I'm really excited to be joined with the head of these each of these organizations. Uh, but before we get into it, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, thank you so much to our sponsors. As always, we couldn't uh, we couldn't come to you. We couldn't pod. You couldn't hear this fantastic information if it wasn't for them. So thanks so much to our sponsors. Uh, well, let's start. We've got uh, four part uh, four individuals on our line today. So um, going from northeast and and swinging around the country, we've got Lisa Engler, who is the director for the Office of Coastal Zone Management in Massachusetts and is the co chair for the Northeast Regional Ocean Collaborative. I think I'm getting that right. Enroc. Um, moving down the coast, we've got Kim Cole, who's the Administrator for Coastal Programs with the uh, Delaware Natural Resources and Environmental, oh, I knew I was going to get that up, DENREC. I forgot what the C stood for, but maybe Kim can fill us in. And she is the um, the chair of the Mid-Atlantic Regional uh, Council on the Ocean, MARCO. Um, moving down south, we've got Laura Bowie, who is the Executive Director of GOMA, the Gulf of Mexico Alliance. And swinging around to the West Coast, we've got John Hansen, who is the coordinator for the West Coast Ocean Alliance, WACOA. Um, so I'm going to have each of these folks introduce themselves and, and fix their titles and their organizations if I botch that. But before we do, probably ought to know what is a regional ocean partnership. So I've asked Kim with Marco to give us a quick high level. What is a regional ocean partnership, Kim? Oh, sure. Thanks, Derek. Um, regional ocean partnerships, or ROPs, because we're government, we speak in acronyms, um, are regional organizations that have been voluntarily convened by the governors in collaboration with other governments and stakeholders to address ocean and coastal issues of common concern in that region. 
So each region is different and has different issues. So the ROPs ensure that um, they focus on the common regional needs. Um, ROPs have operated in several regions for a decade or more and through and through many state and federal administrations, right? Providing uh, interagency engagement and collaboration on cross-jurisdictional ocean and coastal matters. Excellent. So they're regional coastal bodies. We've got states that handle state level issues. We've got feds that handle federal issues and, and the ROPs uh, handle regional bodies. So let's, let's talk about each of you individually. We've got Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, Gulf of Mexico and West Coast. Obviously, you might have noticed we're missing the the Southeast. We're missing the Great Lakes. We'll get into some of the thoughts about how those might develop in a little bit. But um, well, let's let's uh, let's go in reverse uh, order from how I introduced you, John. Why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Maybe in a couple minutes, tell us briefly about what your ROP is, and then give us a little background on yourself. How did how did you get to be where you are? How are you, how did you come to be working for a, a, a regional ocean partnership? Great. Thanks, Derek. And thanks again for having me. Really excited to be here and, and share a bit of insight into what we're up to out on the West Coast. Um, so yes, my name is John Hansen. I serve as the coordinator for the West Coast Ocean Alliance, which is our ROP for the West Coast region. Um, I might just add a caveat in your intro that um, I don't really see myself as the head of our group, quote unquote, and that's probably a good thing. Um, really, I, I serve at the pleasure of our membership, which is made up of state, tribal, and federal agency representatives for the West Coast. So I'm more of a, a cat herder than anything, but um, have really been excited to work with this group based on a number of years of regional efforts that have materialized in a lot of different ways on the West Coast. But our group as the West Coast Ocean Alliance really does focus on bringing together federal agencies with states and with tribal governments. Um, tribes are an absolutely huge element of our conversation on the West Coast, and it really has been something that's pushed some new energy into our dialogue. So we've worked for um, a number of years now as an ROP, and prior to that, we built on previous efforts, which were a little bit more governor-led back to 2006, 2007, the first effort um, through governor's agreements on ocean health were started. And so that was when some of these regional West Coast conversations got off the ground. And then from that flowed a lot of different dialogues, but really focusing on how to bring together West Coast partners across this large scale of geography that we have. Um, so we've evolved from that to a regional planning body, um, which I know we'll talk about under the Obama administration. And then more recently under the Trump administration, we've shifted back to our regional ocean partnership structure, um, but something ultimately that's really focused on bringing together partners that don't often talk a lot. And this has provided a forum to allow them to do that on a regional scale. Um, in terms of my background, um, I really got interested in regional ocean governance in graduate school. Um, I was at the University of Washington School of Marine Affairs and worked closely with a professor there, Mark Hirschman, who actually was on the US Commission on Ocean Policy back in the early 2000s. Um, and he specifically focused on regional ocean governance. He helped draft a chapter of that Ocean Commission report. If anybody's familiar with that, it's a few years old now, but um, something that's still a great resource. Um, chapter five did focus on this idea of creating what they called regional ocean councils, which is really similar to what we have now in ROPs and RPBs and some of the other regional collaborations. So I was able to work closely with him as a grad student for a couple years um, and was really just a fantastic opportunity to dig into what ROPs in terms of regional governance could look like. Um, and to Mark's credit, he's since passed away, sadly, but um, he really threw us right into it and helped us um, really think about kind of as even graduate student level um, sort of person, you know, thinking through what 
really this means in terms of governance and actions. And so that started me into that sort of realm. And then um, over time, I built some good links to state and federal partners on the West Coast and then was staffed uh, to NOAA in 2013, 2014, when the regional planning body was stood up on the West Coast. So I staffed NOAA at that point, did again cat herding for just the feds, and that evolved into the broader formation of the regional planning body in 2015 for the West Coast, again, specifically just under the Obama executive order. Um, and then that has evolved over time. I've since been the lead staffer for the group uh, over all of that time and have really um, kind of tried to roll with the punches, so to speak, in terms of changes to federal policy that uh, ultimately has just allowed us to focus on what West Coast needs are from really our state and tribal partners with feds really being amazingly responsive partners on the West Coast and really materializing into what we sit uh, as now under the West Coast Ocean Alliance. So I'll stop there, but I'm happy to be here again. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. You've done an excellent job of, of herding cats, and I appreciate you joining and having been uh, with WACOA since the very beginning. Um, let's swing down south. Uh, Laura, tell us a bit about GOMA and uh, and how you got involved. Yeah, thanks for having me, Derek. Um, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be in the company of the others, too. We don't often get together like this, so um, I think this is exciting. But uh, yeah, the Gulf of Mexico Alliance is, a, is an alliance of the five Gulf states. We are the regional ocean partnership for the Gulf of Mexico region. Um, we've been doing it since 2004 when uh, the five Gulf state governors got together and said we should really probably take some uh, cues from that uh, Oceans Re Ocean Commission report that John just mentioned. And we should really take so some cues from that report and and manage our common water body together if we can, if we can find issues that are common to all five states, and they did. So fast forward um, 17 years later, we're still around, we're still operating in that way, still collaborating around issues that are common to all five Gulf states, and could use a regional approach. So it's um, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, and we're about a thousand members uh, that all participate on various teams and committees and working groups. Um, so I've been I've been with GOMA since 2009 uh, when I moved from Texas back to Mississippi, um, and I started helping them with their second action plan, Governor's Action Plan. We work in accordance with Governor's Action Plans down here. We are currently writing our fourth one. It's ready to be published probably uh, later this summer, so we're pretty excited about that. We write a new Governor's Action Plan every five years or so. And uh, we're really excited uh, to get ready to do our next one. Um, and I've been around since the second one. So I haven't been around since the very beginning, but um, I'm very well versed. You know, one of the uh, priorities for the Gulf region is restoration. I was doing that long before I came to GOMA. So I feel like the players down here are all uh, real, a really big family, to be honest with you. And so I'm really proud to continue to be a part of that family. Thanks, Laura. And I know all the regions have had their own uh, challenges and, and uh, ups and downs, but certainly the Gulf has been uh, uh, had a lot of issues over the past 15 years from Katrina and the oil spill and, and, and so much more. So um, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's move around the coast a little bit and come back to Kim with, with Delaware. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about Marco. Sure. Um, so Marco, uh, Marco stands for the Mid-Atlantic Regional Council on the Ocean, right? And it's a partnership that was established uh, back in 2009 by a governor's agreement uh, among New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. 
Uh, and as part of that governance agreement, it identified four regional priorities that uh, the states agreed to move forward for shared action, um, uh, focused on climate change adaptation, renewable energy, marine habitats, and water quality. And uh, since that time, uh, the, the uh, Marco has worked with federal agencies, et cetera, and had developed a regional ocean action plan and is moving forward on uh, each, of the act, each of the priorities that um, we've been working on since the beginning. Um, as, as for me, um, I, I grew up going down the shore, um, which I guess you could say has sparked uh, my interest in all things coastal. <laughs> uh, and over my career, I've worked in academia for nonprofits, but the majority has really been with state government. Um, and I started uh, working at DENREC, and here, here's what it stands for, Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control, DENREC, um, back in uh, 1999 as an environmental scientist working on coastal uh, non-point source issues, water quality, uh, shorebirds, a uh, variety of different things. Um, I've been in my current position as the administrator for the coastal programs for about four years now. And that's when I started um, serving on the board for Marco. And it's been uh, an amazing time working with a wonderful group of people, um, very passionate um, about uh, our ocean and our ocean users. Um, and I've been very honored to be a part of the group. Thanks so much, Kim. And uh, probably need to offer you congratulations as you took over as chair of Marco on, uh, I believe, just the start of July. So um, been on the board for a while, but welcome. Uh, no, thank you. To your position yes, for, for the next two years, you'll see more of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, okay, uh, Lisa, we haven't heard from you yet. Uh, last but certainly not least, um, Director of Office for Mass Coastal Zone Management and the co-chair of NROC. Tell us about yourself and a little bit about NROC. Sure. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for the introduction. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. You know, certainly very excited to be um, speaking about um, our, our ROP up in the Northeast and, and learning from and, and hearing from my colleagues in, in the rest of the country as well. Uh, one of my roles as the director for the Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management is, you know, as a member and representative um, to the Northeast Regional Ocean Council, or NROC. Um, and that's the Regional Ocean Partnership for the Northeast, as I indicated. And it's in that role that, as you noted, Derek, I'm currently serving as the state co-chair for NROC. Uh, NROC operates with two co-chairs. Um, we work in 18-month increments. Uh, the, there's a state co-chair and then a federal co-chair. So currently, I am serving with Betsy Nicholson, who is the federal co-chair for NROC with me. Uh, NROC is a 15-year-old uh, organization, you know, similar to Marco. We've been around for a little while. Uh, we are a volunteer organization made up of um, state and federal partnership partners along, you know, com com coming from all the New England states, also federal agencies, and then also other interested regional entities and groups. Those other regional entities and groups can include and do include Native American tribes, the New England Fishery Management Council, regional academic and research consortiums, including the Sea Grant, 
in, um, in the region, and then also the Northeastern Regional Association of Coastal Ocean Observing Systems, or NIRACUS. So as I mentioned, uh, NIRACUS has been around for a long time, since 2005, when it was formed by the governors of the six New England states. So yes, that includes Vermont. Um, NRAC <laughs> seeks to address ocean and coastal issues that benefit from regional coordination. Uh, you know, and this is especially true in New England because of the relatively small size of our states and our close geographic relationship uh, to our shared coastal and ocean waters. Uh, NROC provides a voluntary forum for New England states and then our federal partners to coordinate and collaborate on regional approaches to support, you know, this idea of balanced uses and conservation of the Northeast region's resources. We really pride ourselves on being a nimble partnership that can shift its focus in response to um, the, the issues that come up and that require regional response. And so we've changed our focus somewhat over that 16-year that timeline. Currently, the three areas of focus for NROC are ocean and ecosystem health, coastal resilience, and ocean planning. So regional ocean planning became a focus for NROC early in its formation um, because of what was happening offshore of New England. You know, we saw this increasingly busy ocean environment and the opportunity um, to build off ocean planning actions in New England states, such as like such as Massachusetts, um, which had uh, was was in the was be in the beginning stages at that point of developing our own um, Massachusetts ocean management plan. So NROC saw that need and created the space for this large-scale planning, um, opportunity for dialogue, um, data-driven understanding of a changing ecosystem, and then seeking an, a way to, to try and uh, address potential conflicts between these emerging uses and the more traditional ocean uses that we know are really important uh, in New England with our, our key fisheries history, right? Um, so, you know, more about me, you know, I have an educational background in, in the sciences, uh, in biology, um, and then a master's degree in environmental policy management. I did a short, very short stint in consulting and then moved fairly quickly to public service. And I've really worked for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for the bulk of my professional career, um, just in various capacities at various different agencies in Massachusetts. And I, I really see that uh, a lot of the experience um, that I have from the, those multiple positions across agencies um, is what I draw from in a lot of the coordination roles that I play um, now, uh, for example, through as co state co-chair to NROC, but then also um, in a lot of the other coordinating roles I do when we're thinking about uh, development in our ocean and coastal spaces and connecting uh, stakeholders, the many stakeholders in our ocean spaces. Um, and I'm also, you know, really benefiting from the my predecessors and the the strong collaborative framework that they established, uh, working through and thinking about these big issues and how we really need to be coordinating and working together. Well, thanks to all of you for that uh, wonderful introduction. As as our listeners can hear, there's a lot of similarities, but some some distinct differences, uh, in both in the, the structure of how each of the ROPs are made up, who makes them up, whether it's really entirely state-led, whether it's a, a collaboration of states and feds, or even a collaboration of states, feds, and, and other stakeholders, businesses, NGOs. We'll get into that a little bit uh, more, but I'm going to try to keep this at least to start with a bit more of how they're similar. Um, and I, my first question, John, is going to be for you. 
um, which is for folks who just love the coast, but may not be coastal planners, may not be coastal policy makers. You know, some of our listeners are scientists, geologists, um, you know, they care a lot about the coast, but they're not in, in the weeds of this stuff. What is the value of an ROP? Why should they care about the work that ROPs do? Yeah, this is a great question and one that I think all of us probably have grappled with when somebody says, you know, one, what is this regional ocean partnership thing and, and why do they exist? And, you know, I, I obviously can't speak for other regions, but I think at a general level, in my mind, there are two elements that really regional ocean partnerships focus on and, and bring to the table in, in terms of a role that isn't fulfilled elsewhere. Um, and, and overall, they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. One is really the ocean side, the water side, in the sense of we operate on these regional scales um, precisely because the ocean is regional in nature. And when you look at a map, you might see a state border or a, an outline of tribal territories. Um, even city level jurisdictions. Uh, when you get into the ocean, you know, those lines don't extend, um, one, because of just the uh, geography of, of jurisdictions themselves, but more importantly, because oceans flow back and forth and they don't stop at a state border or a city border or a tribal territory and they're connected. And that is really a, a focus of these regional discussions is to focus on ecosystems. And when we talk about the term ecosystem-based management, which is another tough term to define, it really is focused on understanding ecosystem connections and links and knowing how the ocean um, and those that live and operate in the ocean, both in terms of uh, animals and critters, as well as folks that make their livelihoods off the ocean, um, you know, operate in a way that um, doesn't adhere to stopping at a state line. And and doesn't adhere to um, having something like ocean acidification or rising temperatures or sea level rise stopping just because you've hit a state border. And ultimately, the regional perspective um, that these ROPs provide addresses that, and it connects players working across different states, different federal jurisdictions. You know, you look at the federal side, every agency has different regions, um, different districts, and those don't uh, line up very often. And so when you get everybody to the table, you have to really navigate that in terms of how how does the ocean impact the uses and the threats, but also how do you connect those that manage it in as effective way as you can to address the ecosystem impacts and the ecosystem management that really is required to effectively manage the ocean in general. Um, and so to that end, the, the other side of that coin is the people side. And that's where you look at this mosaic of those that manage the oceans. It's a lot. I mean, you look at a federal level, uh, the federal family of agencies, whether you're talking about the sort of players you know of, like NOAA, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, um, you know, that really are kind of at the ocean um, sort of forefront in terms of what they actually do on a daily basis, but also Army Corps of Engineer, Department of Defense. You know, a lot of these agencies are out there in the water doing a lot of things. And that's true of just a huge range of federal agencies. Same for the states. Every state has its own, obviously, you know, map and, and jurisdiction. And then the, all the agencies that go within that. And then same for tribal governments. Tribal governments have their own role as co-managers as well, which is a key piece for our discussion on the West Coast. Um, and these people, People all do a lot of the same things, but they all have day jobs that don't often uh, entail reaching out to regional partners, um, you know, on a regular basis. And these regional partnerships provide a way to do that in a predictable, timely, open fashion and really provide a forum to connect these folks. And I, I can just say from my own personal experience and probably others on the line as well, you know, the more you get to know folks working on these issues and, and talk to them and hear what they, um, you know, are focused on, the more you see people have in common and that they're dealing with a lot of the exact same issues. And the more they hear from one another, they understand we're all working 
working on a lot of similar goals. And that is something I think regional ocean partnerships strive to provide is, is really understanding how to reach some of those goals and build efficiencies between those folks that are working on these things. Um, and really build relationships. I know we talk about things on the West Coast like offshore wind. We talk about aquaculture. Um, we talk about how to engage with tribal governments and other pieces like that. Um, but that ultimately, you know, beyond the topics we discuss, we're building relationships so that if somebody's on one of our calls, they hear from somebody at BOEM or they hear somebody from a tribe or they hear from a state agency. Those are folks that they get to know and they learn how to connect with them. And so if it's a topic we discuss, great, that's on our agenda. But if it's another topic or if they hear of another project, they they know that person now and they can reach out and say, hey, so-and-so, I'd love to get a call with you on this, right? I have your email address. I'm going to ask you about that. Um, and that's not always easy to define, but it really does build trust and understanding between the people side of ocean management that, again, stretches across just regional boundaries and gets people a little bit out of their silos if operating at a state, a tribal, or a federal level. Um, and so I think regional ocean partnerships bring a unique opportunity to do that, and they link it to science in terms of ecosystem management, to data and regional needs overall um, that really, you know, provides a, a way of addressing these things that um, isn't always easy to do. And I, I think our regions all strive to do that. It's difficult because we navigate under um, the impact of policies. That's something we can't escape. And whether that's a federal administration changing every four to eight years, whether those are new governors coming in, you know, that has ramifications for all of the discussions. But uh, ultimately, I, I think you can really, by the agency, by the tribe, point to folks that want to see the ocean be managed as effectively as it can be and, and be as healthy as it can be. Um, and however you define it, that's really the goal I think everybody has. And uh, these regional groups uh, allow us to strive towards that and, uh, and let the partners be more effectively connected to, to reach those goals that we all have in common. Thanks, John. Yeah, I think what you stated about it's, it's people management as much as it is um, ecological management. I think that's sort of a common thread that we hear whenever we talk about the coastline. Um, there are so many people involved and so many different people involved. It's not, you know, it's not the National Park Service who manages national parks. Well, National Park Service, who manages our ocean, who manages our coastline. It's a laundry list of different agencies um, at multiple different levels. Uh, and that actually leads me into my next question. And, and Lisa, I think I was going to turn over this one over to you. Um, I know it's a bit different for each regional ocean partnership, but how do the ROPs bring together the diverse interests of states, federal agencies, tribes, stakeholders? John mentioned a number of the federal agencies that are at play, but I'm sure there are others. Um, so a little bit, maybe you can take NROC as an example to talk a bit about your structure um, of how you bring them together. But what do you see as the driving force that brings them together? Because even, you know, even a structure only, only works so, uh, as well as the commitment that the, each entity has to participate. So what brings the interests together? Yeah, thanks, Derek. I think, you know, this is a, a really important question and, and really gets to, um, you know, the, the crux of what ROPs are um, and, and um, really leads to, um, you know, how successful they are. And truly the strength and value of the ROPs, in my opinion, is really um, draws from the breadth and diversity of the voices engaged in these re regional conversations. You know, it's it's who comes to the table, but then it's also who feels comfortable sharing their their input and 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 you know, giving lending their voice to these conversations. So I think it's it is a really critical question. Um, so you know, I can speak to NROC's experience and 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 how we handle. Um, the, the importance of engaging with uh, the different stakeholder interests 
um, of the states, of federal agencies, of tribes, um, and, and NGOs, and, and the public. Uh, we build in many opportunities for engagement through um, throughout the, the way that we do our work. So, you know, just down even to the logistics, you know, through our agendas and our meeting formats and our meeting locations, which I think, you know, are, are really critical components um, of, of how we make sure that there is a commitment to an open forum, um, that it's consistency across time, that people know that um, this is how they can engage um, in the conversation. So, you know, our meeting agendas specifically include opportunities for partners in the audience to be engaged, to provide updates and provide feedback. And, and, and those that come to the meetings understand that. Meetings are held, you know, when we were holding in-person meetings, we're held in different locations throughout the region. And we, and we moved around the region to make sure that there were um, more balanced opportunities for attendance. Um, meeting notices, meeting notes, everything associated with, with upcoming or past meetings are posted on our website. Uh, and in those meetings, we, we facilitate them to ensure that there's opportunity for information exchange um, and, and you, know, f- you know, sort of doubling down on this, the, these opportunities for, uh, to receive input, hear input, and then incorporate input into our work plans. So, you know, as I mentioned, we have these three committees or these three focus areas and for each of those um, uh, focus areas, we have committees and those committees, anyone can be a member um, and they just need to commit to, to support uh, the purpose of those committees. Um, and those committees draft work plans at, for every two year period. Uh, those work plans are then um, vetted um, and Put as draft um, for the membership to to see and receive um, input, um, and input is received, and then and then um, that is taken into account and finalized by the executive committee. So you know this is how we've been building relationships in NROC um, for 16 years, and and it's been working. You know NROC continues to be a leader in regional ocean partnerships. We've been demonstrating the benefits of how this close coordination and collaboration among the different members um, and entities um, really provides value to to answering questions um, about some of our our key ocean management challenges. You know, I also want to mention that that during the Obama administration, you know, I know someone else mentioned this earlier, a Northeast regional planning body was formed uh, in the Northeast to build off NROC's ocean planning work. And, and that, that included hundreds of stakeholders, um, and, and they were brought together to develop the first in the nation Northeast Ocean Plan. Uh, and that plan uh, continues to be something that, that NROC looks to and implements through the Ocean Planning Committee. Um, and it, it, it's a strong product of, of this and an exhibit of our stakeholder engagement and how um, we were able to bring together a wide array of interests. Um, and we continue to do so through, as I mentioned before, you know, our data gathering, data development and data sharing in the North, Northeast Ocean Data Portal, um, as well as we continue to, to work on and, and provide a platform for information sharing on some of these big questions and these new issues that we're all seeing, like regional offshore wind transmission, offshore wind in general, uh, and then the interactions between these new um, emerging industries like offshore wind and our more traditional ones. 
So uh, that's how NROC handles things. And, and, I, and I think, you know, other ROPs are, are probably similar, um, but, you know, we've got this strong track record and, and you know, it's working and, and we're excited to, to see that and be able to, to point to that. I'd actually be interested to see if anyone else wanted to jump in really on either of the last two comments, both about how, you know, what's the value of the ROP and how it's structured. Does anyone else want to comment or share their perspective? So, uh, Derek, in the Gulf, uh, we have, of, of course, our states convened us all those years ago, but very uh, at the exact same meeting, our federal partners from EPA, NOAA and U.S. Fish and Wildlife in particular stood up and said, we support this effort. We support this idea uh, to uh, join forces with the states and really see if there's ways that we can address uh, coastal issues in a regional way rather than a um, <laughs> what meet you at the border kind of state by state approach. And it worked. They also, though, quickly realized that they couldn't just do it with states and feds alone. So at in, in the Gulf of Mexico, um, or GOMA, as we call ourselves. Um, we also have a lot of participation by academic institutions, other nonprofits, um, and business and industry partners who all participate in the conversation, all have a voice at the table to talk about how to address these regional um, regional issues in a positive way and move that needle if we can, where and when we can, whether it's a policy needle, whether it's an actual implementation needle, um, we really have been able to make great strides because we have a diverse group of voices at the table. So that's a lot about how the Gulf of Mexico Alliance operates. Uh, and Derek, I could uh, expand a little with uh, Marco as well. Um, so, so Marco is is this is the states, right? The five Mid Atlantic states. Um, but we also convened the Mid Atlantic Committee on the Ocean, called MACO. Um, which is a mechanism to coordinate with the federal agencies and tribes and the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council on regional ocean planning. And um, the Mid-Atlantic Ocean Action Plan that I mentioned that was born out of the work of the Mid-Atlantic Regional Planning Body, that helps guide those things, the, the priorities and things forward. Um, we have regional topic-specific work groups um, and uh, with members from different federal agencies. Uh, um, we also, uh, with MAKO, hosts a uh, Mid-Atlantic Ocean Forum to engage stakeholders on, um, on ocean topics and issues. And held one just this past uh, May, um, virtually, that covered wide variety of current topics available for um, uh, the, the public and ocean users to engage on from offshore wind energy, um, climate-induced ocean changes, science, equity, and ocean justice. Um, uh, we engage with people on like innovative tools and emerging technologies for monitoring the ocean um, with potential management application and case studies to address the uh, data needs and management, um, as well as uh, having conversations on conservation and shifting species to understand uh, living marine resource management in the face of a changing climate. Um, but one of, one of the keys also is that it, it incorporates multiple opportunities for public participation. 
uh, ranging everything from like engaging students and early career professionals as part of it. Um, and a variety of, of ocean uh, users, uh, states, agencies, NGOs, tribes, watershed organizations, sports fishing, um, maracus, secret, et cetera, acad academia, industry. Um, so it, it, there's a great value in the collaboration of bringing people together to get their input. And uh, that's definitely one of the ways that Marco and um, the Ocean Planning Committee, MAKO, um, engages in the Mid-Atlantic. Well, thank you guys for jumping in on uh, on providing some context there. I, I think it is interesting. I think of NROC as really being this collaborative entity between the feds and the states, and there's certainly input there um, and, and consultation and partnership with tribal governments, NGOs, but it's really the states and the feds. I, I think of, you know, as Kim, as you alluded, Marco is really state-led, um, and there's other opportunities for providing input, but it's really that state-driven effort. Um, Goma is, uh, you know, sort of everyone is welcome. Um, I think it's sort of I think of it as the biggest, uh, the broadest uh, collaboration between states, feds, and uh, uh, NGOs, academia, etc. And I know there's roles for each of those of the others, but I, I think I think of Goma as sort of the broadest. And then um, the West Coast Ocean Alliance really being state and tribally led, with strong support from federal agencies and uh, uh, partners. But um, I think it just sort of goes to show there's, you know, pardon the expression, but there's a, more than one way to skin a cat and you can do it. Uh, you can have good regional ocean partnerships in a lot of different ways. Um, okay. I hope I didn't mischaracterize any of that. And obviously you can jump in on, on, on my next round of questions if I did. But I want to turn towards the policy side of the discussion today, which is one of the reasons we're having this um, podcast now is because there's a, a, a policy, a timely policy topic, which is Congress is currently working on a authorization bill for the ROPs. Um, this was a bill. There was a bill introduced in the last Congress, but uh, Congress recently introduced um, uh, ROP bill in both the House and the Senate. The Senate bill recently got marked up that would provide full authorization for regional ocean partnerships, and if if passed, would also potentially provide funding for the ROPs. And so, Laura, I'm turning my question to you as our uh, political insight, um, our, our political insider, uh, sort of how does this work, right? How have the ROPs operated without a federally authorized bill? Um, and then what do you see as the advantages of, of getting a federal authorization for regional ocean partnerships? So that's a good question. How have we been operating all this time, right? Um, in an ad hoc way, if if I could. Um, so it's kind of like a, a mishmash, right? So in the Gulf, anyway, we have we have been relying on funding where we can find it. So uh, we have a lot of a pretty good amount of private funding from our private partners down here in the Gulf. We are able to get competitive grants from our uh, federal agencies through the years. Recently, NOAA has been uh, able to fund the ROPs, all of us, uh, for data portals in particular. So that's been really exciting and it's able to really bring everything up a notch. 
Um, and so, and then I know that the other ROPs, and I don't want to um, take their thunder or speak out of turn, but I believe they've been very successful at getting uh, foundation grants. So we all do it a little bit different way, and it's all kind of like a, you know, a great big melting pot of how we've been able to stay afloat. But I will say that our, our private partners in the Gulf region have really come through for us because they see value in having us do what we do. Um, so therefore, uh, we've been operating and, and, and really had some tremendous accomplishments if you think about the fact that that our funding is not um, is not we can't count on it every year right so the achievements are usually just from a variety of assortment of funding sources who are not necessarily sustainable um, and a lot of in-kind capacity from our partners uh, whether those are states or feds or, or academics or nonprofits or businesses everybody contributing what they can to make the system work or make the process work so you're right um, Derek we are currently have a bill out there um, seeking authorization we have one both in the house and the senate now um, and what this funding would do is it would, first of all, it would formalize the authors, formalize uh, the four regional ocean partnerships. It provides an avenue for additional regional ocean partnerships if other regions of the country are interested. And it will provide um, some um, author, authorization for appropriations. Um, and, and it's really just a little bit to secure predictable funding uh, that we can use to make sure that we are able to continue to do intentional collaboration. That's what it takes. That's what, you know, it just takes a little, but it, it, it's so important that we have some way to sustain intentional collaboration. Everybody means to collaborate. Everybody means to coordinate. But unless you have somebody whose job it is to make that happen, a lot of times it just doesn't happen. So we've learned that the hard way and the easy way down here in the Gulf. And we realized that with just a little bit of funding, we can actually make things go uh, faster, more effective, less duplication. And so that's why uh, the Regional Ocean Partnerships are proud uh, that just here in the last couple of weeks, we've had a, a bill introduced in both the House and the Senate to authorize Regional Ocean Partnerships. Thanks, Laura. And I, I know um, not everyone on the phone is, has the ability to sort of lobby or advocate, but certainly this isn't uh, the ROP Act is something that Coastal States Organization is, is strongly supportive of. We see great opportunities to, as you said, uh, really move ad hoc collaboration to intentional collaboration. And I think each of the ROPs on the line has, have done just a fantastic job, given the, the lack of certainty in funding um, and the lack of you know, requirement for participation at the federal level. And I think this would be a great opportunity to um, sort of create certainty around all the good work that you guys are doing. So uh, CSO will be continuing to work with this and looking forward to working with you to make sure that the ROP Act um, moves forward and moves forward in ways that works for you guys. Okay, um, we are sort of getting a bit towards the end of our time. So I did have uh, one question that I wanted to ask each of you. I realized um, the question that I'd, I'd sent you ahead of time might be a little bit unfair because it was, what's the most important thing your ROP does? And I realized that could probably get you in hot water because if you said, what is the single most important thing, you probably would have members that say, well, that's not true. We, we also do this. So I will uh, change that question slightly to be, what is one important thing um, that your ROP does? And I, I'd like to keep this one pretty brief. So if you could maybe take just two or three minutes um, to say one important thing that your ROP does that helps it helps the ocean, that helps the coast, that helps um, provide coordination. Uh, so I didn't have an order for this. Why don't we start? Um, why don't we start with Kim in the Mid Atlantic? What is one important thing that your ROP does? 
thanks, Derek. And I'm glad that you broadened that to be one thing rather than the most important thing. I appreciate that. Um, so, so I will say that um, uh, Marco's Mid-Atlantic Ocean Data Portal is a major asset um, that is used by decision makers and other public stakeholders and ocean users in the region. Um, uh, the portal is a publicly available online tool and resource center that consolidates and synthesizes available data. It enables users to visualize and analyze ocean resources, habitats, and human use information, such as fishing grounds, recreational areas, shipping lanes, and energy sites, among others. Um, the portal allows everyone to access to, to the same best available spatial information when making decisions about our shared ocean resources, thereby enhancing uh, public engagement, reducing user conflict, and uh, supporting a more coordinated and informed decision-making. And we're really seeing the importance of this coordination across the states and decision-making entities highlighted in recent years, as many of the states in the Mid-Atlantic have adopted uh, ambitious renewable energy goals, uh, many of which might be through offshore wind development. Um, and it's, a, it's an example of how we have worked together in order to help meet those goals to that minimize conflicts as much as possible by increasing our understanding of uh, different stakeholder needs across the region um, and generating uh, useful and accessible data products. Thanks, Kim. And we certainly don't have enough time here to go into all the good things that the regional, regional ocean data portal does, but I believe there will be a ASPN flagship podcast coming up with uh, Marco discussing that uh, ocean data portal. Um, so uh, check back in in a couple of weeks and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get you more information on that. Uh, let's ping pong over to the West Coast. John, what is one important thing that your uh, ROP does? Thanks, Derek. And I'll echo Kim first just to say data portals are critical and flag our West Coast Ocean Data Portal as an amazing partner that we've worked with. Um, but shifting away from data, um, I do think one thing for us to highlight on the West Coast is uh, the role that our tribes play in terms of the co-management discussion that um, we've really tried to foster and really grow in some new ways. Um, you know, when we had our uh, governor's agreement on ocean health started back, you know, 15 years ago, um, it was a great start to the regional discussion, but it really was state-led and it was run through the governor's offices. And as a result, the, the large number of tribes that we have on the West Coast, um, you know, we're over 140 federally recognized tribes in our region, uh, many of whom are involved with oceans and, and many of whom have a formal role. Some have treaties with the federal government. They really are co-managers. And when some of those early regional discussions happened, um, they weren't at the table. And that, um, I think, was um, to some extent because it was such a state-led process that there really wasn't um, a seat for them, nor was it really set up in a way that facilitated tribal participation. And when the Obama executive order came out and really called for a more robust federal presence and more robust planning discussion, we worked really hard to get our tribes to that table in a new way. And it took some time. And I, I think there is a lot of uncertainty from tribal perspectives. Again, I cannot speak for them. Um, but uh, I think understanding how they've been um, engaged with in the past has not always been super successful 
successful. And uh, I think when we started our regional planning body, um, we really reached out and tried to um, foster some new trust and some new discussions with tribes in a way that they they hadn't been approached with um, prior to that. And so um, that it took a lot of effort, but I think it's culminated now as we sit today uh, in a much better spot. You know, nothing is perfect and there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, but I, I say all that as a way to highlight one product we've worked on as a tribal um, engagement guidance document. I, I mentioned it at the start, our, our tribal guidance um, is, has been something that our tribes have helped develop. And we're right now um, working on how to really spread the word about that. The guide itself highlights everything from large level kind of policy um, and engagement uh, theories and sort of uh, goals to very specific uh, techniques for having meetings with tribes, how to engage, how to consult. Um, and the idea of the guide is not to replicate or replace any existing consultation or trust responsibilities between tribes and federal and state agencies, but to just have a better conversation and a better way to engage um, with uh, with tribes. And so NOAA is undertaking a training around that for their West Coast line offices, which is great. They're talking about rolling that up to leadership level back in DC, which we're super excited about. We've heard from BOEM and other federal agencies that want to um, take this and do a training with it. Likewise, states on the West Coast have done the same. Um, and so we're hoping that that really gets a foothold for um, how we can have tribes be better partners um, in terms of how they are engaged with um, federal and state uh, partners. And then also think about how other regions can take this guidance and maybe um, have similar conversations in their own regions in terms of how they work with tribes as well. Um, you know, every tribe is its own sovereign government. There is no one size fits all. Um, but we do think there are ways to really um, improve what uh, is a co-management relationship that needs to happen between federal agencies, between tribes and between states. And uh, so that is something we're really excited about on the West Coast. Thanks, John. Really appreciate you sharing that. And it's certainly a, a, an issue that I think has been um probably under-discussed under and under-appreciated historically. So uh, I think the work you're doing is, um, you know, I don't want to say groundbreaking. It's something we should have been doing all along, but it's it's uh, it's really appreciated. Uh, and I'll be interested to hear how some of the tribes respond to the ROP Act that we mentioned just uh, a little while ago. Um, there are some pretty significant, uh, or it includes uh, tribal participation um in that language and also provides authorization for funding specifically to help tribes participate in regional ocean partnerships. So hopefully the work you're doing does, does expand outward and, and sort of does set that precedent. So thank you. Um, okay, let's go back down to uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Laura, what is one important thing that your ROP does? You're making us pick one, aren't you? So, um, while definitely the, just the fact that we bring people together, we provide a forum for collaboration. So I could stop there, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, we provide a forum for collaboration among, you know, six or eight different issues that are that are common to all five Gulf states. And that's really hugely important. It goes back to my intentional coordination or intentional collaboration comment uh, a moment ago. Um, but there's also something else I'm really proud that we do in the Gulf, and that is that our work with communities, uh, especially through our resilience team, but it's branching out into our other teams as well. We have a coastal community resilience team. They are really seriously focused on developing and helping communities to address issues that make them vulnerable or rather issues that are going to build up their resilience, right, to coastal hazards. And so we've worked with over 70 different uh, 
communities, municipalities across the Gulf of Mexico to help them evaluate their resilience uh, through the, the Community Resilience Index that was uh, developed by our Sea Grant partners right here in the Gulf. And we've partnered with them to get into these communities, help them evaluate their uh, coastal community resilience. And then GOMA goes out and seeks funding to help those communities plug those resilience gaps. Uh, that they identified when they evaluated themselves, when they did a self-evaluation. So I'm really proud of the fact that we we help individual companies come up with customized solutions to address their, their uh, coastal resilience vulnerabilities. And that's something that I think that we want to continue doing um, as long as we can through our resilience team, through that collaboration that we bring um, across all five Gulf states. Well, thank you so much, Laura. Another fantastic um, project and, and, and series of projects that, that the ROPs are doing. Uh, unfortunately, we seem to have uh, lost lost Lisa um, with NROC. She had some connection issues, so won't be able to turn and hear what NROC's most important uh Thing that the most important thing, or one of the most important things that NROC does. Um, but as it turns out, we really are getting towards the end of our show. And I wanted to make sure we had a, a chance to hear just a little bit of personal information about each of you. I do like to end my shows um, with a personal question. And, and while I tried not to get you in trouble by asking what is the single most important thing you do, I am going to try to get you in trouble by asking you uh, to choose the single uh, coastal or beach area that you, uh, that you like the most. What, what brings you enjoyment? What brings you, what refreshes you, what keeps you going. And um, you're not allowed to say, you're not allowed to choose one from every state. So you're going to really have to be, uh, you know, choose some winners and losers here. So what is the favorite, your favorite coastal spot? Um, and why don't we do that in the reverse order from what we did, just did. So Laura, how about you? What's your favorite coastal spot in the Gulf or, or not in the Gulf? I suppose you could choose somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, really. You were trying to limit me to the Gulf, but I'm going to pick a Gulf one anyway. Um, so I uh, live here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and we have barrier islands. Um, off our coast, which I'm sure most everybody else does as well. But um, my favorite coastal place is called Horn Island. It's um, uh, it's part of the National Seashore chain of islands, and we can get to it by boat in about 10 or 15 minutes from our house. And um, when I am there, I can lose track of time uh, and just completely forget what day it is and what's going on. I could stay there forever if I if I was allowed to. <laughs> It's it's a, it's a deserted island. There's no one that lives there. A lot of people from the Mississippi Gulf Coast visit there by boat only, um, but there are no structures. And so it's just a, a little piece of nature uh, that we all feel like belongs to, to us personally. Sounds lovely. John, how about you? Where's your spot? Well, we have a lot on the West Coast. And as somebody who grew up in California, but went to school in Washington and lived in Oregon briefly, I, I can honestly say the entire West Coast is a place everyone should explore at some time. But being a native of Northern California here in the Bay Area, where I currently live now with my my family, I will call out Half Moon Bay, which is just a bit south of San Francisco, north of Santa Cruz, about an hour drive from where I live a little bit inland in the East Bay here in San Francisco Bay Area. And it's, you know, one of many that we visited, but it is a special place where I've gone out, especially with my kids. I now have four kids. 
which uh, still I'm wrapping my head around. We have uh, one-year-old twins uh, along with a eight-year-old and a six-year-old, two girls that are a little bit older. But starting with our first, we had gone out to Half Moon Bay. was one of the first places we took her out to the beach and have since returned many times with uh, our other little ones to go tide pooling, sit in the sand. Uh, it's not always sunny out in Half Moon Bay as much as people like to picture every California beach is 80 degrees in perfect weather. We get some fog and marine layer up here in the north, but it is an amazing spot to go out and explore and ultimately, you know, share the appreciation of the ocean, visit beautiful places, see fun little crabs and see anemones and, and things like that, that I love sharing with my family and uh, hope to continue to do so. So that, that's definitely a special spot for me and uh, one I hope to continue to enjoy for years to come. Thanks, John. Okay, Kim, take us home. Where's your favorite coastal spot? All right, thanks. So, so there are many favorites, um, or there are many, but my favorite um, is really where I grew up, grew up going. Um, I was born and raised in New Jersey and Long Beach Island in New Jersey would be my favorite and Surf City specifically. Um, it's where as a family we would go swimming and beachcombing and fishing and boating, crabbing, clamming with our feet in the, in the mud. <laughs> uh, trying to water ski. I, yeah, I was never really successful at that, but it was still fun. Um, I had a lot, have a lot of wonderful experiences and memories with my family, um, some who live there still today. And uh, uh, I was just there this past weekend and I could be, anytime I'm there, it's, it's definitely my happy place. Well, thanks to each of you for sharing and thanks to each of you for joining. And and most importantly, thanks to each of you for the fantastic work you do with your regional ocean partnership. Um, I hope to continue this conversation at some level with you. uh, And uh, thanks to all our listeners for, for participating. 